Early voting gets underway across the Lone Star State. More Texans than ever have registered, but are they actually voting? An early peek today on the Texas Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. We'll check in on how early voting's going as Texans begin casting ballots in the midterms. Plus, a primer on early voting should you plan to cast your ballot. Also, a Texas filmmaker revisits Molly and Ann. What two of the most famous and politically restless Texans could teach us about how to do politics today? And what impact could the Khashoggi affair have on Texas energy? All that and then some, today on the Texas Standard. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this Monday. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us. And I'll have a Sriracha bagel, a plain bagel, and a large cup of coffee to go, please. In other words, it was morning as usual until something unusual happened. So I was stirring in the sweet and low. The clerk waved me back over, took my coffee cup, and dumped it before my very eyes. The reason, apparently, she had given me the coffee without realizing there's a boil water notice in the city of Austin, and I was apparently about to drink a potential microbe bomb, albeit caffeinated. To say that the boil water notice issued is the buzz of the Texas capital city may be an understatement. Thanks, silty floodwaters. Forecasters expect Wednesday to be the next critical day for flash flooding. Two to four more inches of rain expected for saturated central Texas before things start to dry out for real right around Thursday or so. Keep it here for the latest. A flood of people expected for President Trump's appearance at a Houston arena today. Police say some 70,000 people in all the catch. The arena he's scheduled to appear at only seats 18,000. Not clear that all those expected are actually Trump's supporters. Many are likely protesters. Chief Art Acevedo says his police department is all hands on deck tonight, including undercover officers and fast response teams. Last night, hundreds of people were already in line for the Trump event, which is designed to drum up support for Ted Cruz. Speaking of the midterms, Texas... Today, it's getting real. Texans who have registered began casting their ballots early this morning. This is not a test, only it is in another sense, since Texas has one of the poorest records for voter turnout in the U.S. A lot of people are expecting that could change this year, given our current state of political polarization. The curious wonder if this translates into actual participation. Brian Kirkpatrick is a reporter for Texas Public Radio. He's been out and about in San Antonio this morning. Brian, I gather you're west of downtown. Put us on the map there. Yes, we're in far western San Antonio near SeaWorld at a community college where there's a early voting place that's been open here for about an hour. We've talked to three voters. One said they plan to vote for Wart just to shake things up. One said they plan to vote for Cruz because they like his tough stance on border issues. And a young student just said, he was out here to fight apathy. He said he didn't care what side people were on. He just hoped people would come out and cast a ballot. Are there any lines, or can people just walk up and, and um, uh, present their ID? It's a very short line this morning. I think we've probably seen about maybe a dozen or two voters so far. The wait is not long at all. You've covered uh, elections in the past. Do you sense any difference out there on the street? I think there's a little more excitement for a midterm election. Uh, our county elections administrator says it really takes a presidential vote to get people off the sidelines. But again, the Beto O'Rourke, Ted Cruz race has stirred up a little excitement. However, 
Uh, there's still a lot of apathy out there. Only 14% of the county's registered voters turned out for the March primaries this year. Brian Kirkpatrick is a reporter for Texas Public Radio. He's been speaking with us from west of downtown San Antonio, specifically Northwest Vista College near SeaWorld, if you know your San Antonio geography. Brian, thanks so much for speaking with us on The Standard. Thank you. Now, I should mention that we have been getting pictures from folks on social media Uh, in other parts of the Lone Star State, notably the largest city in Texas, Houston. And I know that Wells Dunbar, our social media editor, is going to be bringing us uh, perspective from there shortly. But first, we're going to turn to Saida Hassan. She's a reporter with KUT in Austin, our home station. And Saida, where exactly are you right now? So I am outside the Flan Academic Center here at the UT campus, and this is a really popular location for voting um, throughout early voting and on Election Day. It's pretty quiet this morning um, with this being just the very first day of early voting. Are you seeing any lines or has anyone shown up uh, to, to cast a ballot? No lines today. I did see about a dozen people inside um, when I came here, and it looks like uh, from what I'm hearing from voters as they're coming out, there's not much of a wait, and people are able to get in and out within about five minutes. Now, have you seen this polling station in the past? I mean, I can recall there being rather long lines for uh, elections that have been far less, uh, uh, I don't want to say far less contested, but certainly there hasn't been nearly as much attention paid to, to those previous elections. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think if you come out here most election days, you'll see lines going all the way around the building. Um, But it it is a pretty quiet morning here today, but I'm sure that we'll see it pick up kind of as the early voting uh, continues on and especially as we get closer to election day. Just a a sense of that. You mentioned that you're on the campus of the University of Texas. Are we talking about is this a, uh, a polling place that seems to cater to younger voters primarily or not so much? Well, I'd say we're seeing a pretty diverse crowd here today on the first day of early voting. And I think that um, you definitely see large numbers of students voting here. But there are also several UT professors, um, plenty of folks that work on campus in different capacities. I actually just spoke with Louis Waldman, who is an art history professor here at UT. And, uh, you know, this was a really convenient place for him to walk just across the street and cast his ballot on the very first day of early voting. And we should uh, point out that we're talking about convenience here. Anyone can vote at these polling centers in Travis County and Harris County has similar uh, polling centers set up. Saida Hassan is covering this first day of balloting early voting in Texas. She is a reporter at KUT Austin, our home station. Saida, thanks so much. Thanks, David. All right, let's imagine you are set to cast your ballot. What exactly do you need to do and what do you need to have? Joining us now, Professor Sherry Greenberg, clinical professor at UT Austin's Lyndon B. Johnson School of Public Affairs. Professor Greenberg, welcome to Texas Standard. Thank you. Happy to be here. Everyone, please vote. Well, uh, first things first, where do people need to cast their ballot? I mean, do they have to be in their precinct? It depends where you live in the state of Texas. There are some counties, such as Travis County or Harris County, that have voting centers that allow you to vote anywhere in your county. And other counties, you must go to your polling place for your precinct. So just to be clear, if you are, say, uh, a resident of El Paso and you happen to be traveling to Harris County where they do have these voting centers, you can't cast your ballot there at one of those voting centers. That's just for residents of Harris County, correct? Correct. That is just for residents of Harris County. So where do you find out where your polling places are? 
you find out where your polling places are by going to your county, uh, specifically to your county clerk who handles elections in your county. Uh-huh. To uh, to the website is the easiest. Uh, you could also go to the Secretary of State or potentially uh, to your city. There may be something posted on your city's website. Right. Also. Now, in Texas, there has been quite a battle over what sort of documentation you need to prove that, in fact, you are who you say you are. What sort of documents must you have uh, must you show to that person uh, who is uh, uh, checking you in there uh, at, at the polling place? Yes, we have a voter ID law in Texas, and it is very specific. You must have a Texas driver's license or a Texas election ID certificate or a Texas personal identification card or a Texas handgun license or a U.S. citizenship certificate with your photo or a U.S. military ID card with your photo, Mm -hmm. or a U.S. passport. Okay, so those are seven documents, and they're very specific about that that documentation. Uh, Let's say, though, that your uh, driver's license doesn't match what the registration list says your, your address is. Then what? What do you what do you do if you find that there's something wrong with the way that your registration is coming up? If you find there is a discrepancy or something wrong, then you may be able to cast what's called a provisional ballot and you should ask about that. Uh, You know, Professor, a lot of people have said that they haven't voted in the past because uh, they didn't have time during the day to to get away from work. And by the time, you know, four or five rolls around, there are huge lines uh, outside uh, many of these early voting centers. So what does the law say about what employers have to do when it comes to giving people time to to, to vote? Uh, Texas law, and this is the Texas Election Code, requires an employer to provide an employee with time off to vote if during their regularly scheduled hours they would not have such time. But I would recommend that um, people check with their employers. Okay, absolutely. And we are seeing uh, a lot of new registrants this year. A record 15.6 million people in Texas registered to vote. And I think that's up by more than one and a half million, if I'm not mistaken, over the last midterm. What does that mean for early voting, if anything? And, and what, is, uh, what does that tell you? Well, certainly it tells me that there's a lot of enthusiasm, at least at this point, as far as registering to vote. Of course, we have to see if that actually means more people vote, not just register, but come to the polls. But clearly, you would expect to see an uptick. And we have been seeing... Um, over time, more and more people choosing to vote early uh, because of the convenience. So um, typically you see a, a burst at the beginning and then a lot of people towards the end of early voting, you know, getting that last chance to vote early and seeing lines then. Sure, Greenberg clinical professor at UT's LBJ School of Public Affairs. We'll have this up at our website, texasstandard.org. Professor Greenberg, thanks for your time. Thank you. Have a good day. Well, Zunbar, our social media editor, I mentioned that you've been seeing, I've been seeing, mm-hmm. too, some pictures on social media on uh, lines in the Houston area. Yeah, really interesting voting. stuff. Yeah, one of our listeners, Nicole Bjerger, she sent us 
a link to an incredible video on Facebook showing the line just before doors opened in central Houston at the Metropolitan Multi-Services Center. It shows hundreds of people stretching out from the front door and snaking around the entirety of the parking lot. Wow. It's one of those uh, time-lapse sped-up videos, mm -hmm. and it still goes on for about a solid 40 seconds. It's really so incredible. people don't really walk that fast. No, no, no. We're still <laughs> but we've retweeted her message uh, that she sent to us on her own account, and Nicole adds that people camped out overnight. You can't tell me something isn't happening in Texas. And shifting gears from Houston to North Texas via Twitter, Lindsay Wilson Gowan tweeted that at 8 a.m. the Grapevine Texas early voting location opened the lines with a 45 to 60 minute wait. Wow, that's Grapevine. Denton, you said? Yeah, a Grapevine, a northern grapevine. suburb of Dallas. Yeah, there. Right, right. Yeah, I know Grapevine. Yeah, wow. so very interesting. Uh, also hearing from our friends and listeners uh, who are in the thick of it right now on Facebook, Jim Wintrell mm -hmm. says that he's in line right now in San Antonio and there's probably about 100 people in line Wow. with him you know and if in case you haven't gone to the polls yet or you're still sort of sussing all that stuff out i should get a quick plug in here for a voter guide that we mm -hmm. are a part of we partnered with the league of women voters in uh, bringing our listeners a nonpartisan voter guide basically laying out who the candidates are you can type in your address and get a personalized ballot with all that information Lovely. and more you can visit texasdecides.org texasdecides.org for that awesome voting guide. yeah, yeah. that's uh, that's that's really useful texas decides .org. It's a project uh, that Texas public radio stations are putting together, and you need to take advantage of that. Uh, we are, uh, gosh, uh, we're asking for you to tweet us right now and let us know how things are going in your neck of the woods. Well done, Bars. could be back in 35. There's more of the standard just ahead. Support for Texas Standard comes from TCU, where horned frogs strive to be ethical leaders and global citizens, like Mike Slattery, who empowers students to save the world's remaining rhinos. More at leadon.tcu.edu. TCU, lead on. Hey, it's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. For nearly six decades, the Weiler Aerial Tramway in El Paso has been the only sky tram in Texas. It was originally built for a private business, but opened to the public about 20 years or so ago and became a rather popular attraction. Gondolas traveling on 2,400 feet of thick cable hauled people to the top of the Franklin Mountains. That is, until last month. Texas Parks and Wildlife Department has closed the tramway indefinitely. Natalie Krebs reports engineers discovered it needs expensive upgrades and repairs, and now the tramway's future hangs in limbo. The mustard-colored gondolas of the Weiler Aerial Tramway sway in the wind on the cable that leads them to the top of the mountain. Just weeks ago, they used to take people on a five-minute ride over cacti, rock formations, and a giant canyon. The tramway ends at an observation deck on Ranger Peak. You can see El Paso, Ciudad Juarez. You can see Sunland Park, New Mexico. So basically, you're seeing three different cities, three different states. Uh, two different countries. That's Franklin Mountain State Park Superintendent Cesar Mendez. He's one of just a few park employees left at the tramway's base since it was suddenly shut down in mid-September. But folks like Jacob Leon and his family from nearby Monahans are still showing up, only to find a sign on the gate that reads closed for maintenance. Drove all this way to find out it was closed. The state made the abrupt decision to close the nearly 60-year-old tramway last month after an engineering report found it had been operating past its life expectancy. Park Superintendent Cesar Mendez says replacing it would be a multi-million dollar project. He says the state is still figuring out what to do. 
you cannot just order a new one. I mean, it, it, all this has to be designed completely from scratch. The old custom-made tramway is also a piece of El Paso's history. It was built in 1959 by a man named Carl Weiler. He owned a local television station, KTSM, and had the tramway built so technicians could service the TV towers at the top of the mountains. Eric Pearson remembers riding the cars to the top as a young photographer at KTSM. If you've never been to the top, there's something great. Uh, there is a single track, razor sharp cliff that drops down the, the crest of the mountain. And you're right on top of that, looking eye level with peregrine falcons who are soaring above the desert. Today, Pearson is the president of the El Paso Community Foundation. He says Weiler wanted everyone in El Paso to have that tramway experience. So when he died in 1990, he left it to the El Paso Community Foundation to find a way to open it to the public. The foundation donated the tramway to the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department in 1997. We got a, a complete uplift and then in 2001 opened to the public. Mendez says the tramway quickly became one of the most popular attractions in the city. About 45,000 people rode it last year, but it has also required a lot of upkeep and maintenance. Matthew Austin is the site superintendent for the tramway. For compatibility reasons, once you repair one thing, subsequently you got to uh, repair some of the other things. It's an aged system, so that was kind of the, the requirement. Now the tramway's fate comes down to whether Texas Parks and Wildlife can find the money to replace the system. State Representative Lena Ortega, whose district includes the tramway, says she and other delegates are meeting with Texas Parks and Wildlife officials this month to discuss options. But Ortega says she knows it will be a long process. That's why I kind of have a, a sense of urgency, I'm sure as, as well as the other members of our delegation, that we work on it now to get the funding and to get it reopened. Park officials say it's unlikely the tram will be open to the public anytime soon. The priority now is to get it secure enough for its original function so technicians can reach the towers at the top of the mountain. In El Paso, I'm Natalie Krebs for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Well, the official story from Saudi Arabia over what happened to journalist and dissident Jamal Khashoggi at the consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd, well, that story is changing once again. The Saudi government now says Khashoggi was killed at its consulate in Istanbul as part of a rogue operation by Saudi agents who had nothing to do with the powerful crown prince. This differs from earlier statements presented by Saudi officials, and it conflicts with allegations from Turkish officials who claim they have video and audio proof that Khashoggi was murdered by a 15-man team who arrived and departed on the same day. U.S. lawmakers are among the many worldwide demanding repercussions. Of course, this has pretty big implications for Texas, too. Saudi Arabia is a major player in the oil industry with not inconsiderable ties to Texas and the energy center of Houston in particular. What does all this mean for us? Joining us now, Energy Insider Matt Smith, Director of Commodity Research at Clipper Data. Matt, welcome back. Thanks, David. So how are we seeing this uh, Khashoggi affair play out in the oil marketplace? Well, David, we're not. Uh, there hmm. is this concern that 
Saudi Arabia could weaponize oil if it came to sanctions. But really, it seems that sanctions are not going to be involved here. Oh, that's uh, very interesting because I know that uh, there are a lot of uh, folks on Capitol Hill who are saying that the United States cannot stand idly by, and it's not altogether clear that notwithstanding Mr. Trump's reluctance to shake up the relationship with Saudi Arabia, uh, right. it may not be in his hands. Well, this has been deferred and and pushed off for a number of weeks so far, and I think it probably will continue to be, even though obviously the, the, the drumbeat for something being done is building. Uh, but even if we were to see some kind of sanctions, they could just be, say, limited to an individual. We've seen cases in the last few years and in recent history of how you don't see the energy flows interrupted or disturbed, uh, despite animosity between different countries. So, for example, ourselves, we've talked about the U.S. and Venezuela and the likelihood of sanctions right. being put in place. Right. And there, we're still seeing half a million barrels a day from Venezuela being sent to the U.S. So despite this animosity, you still continue to, to see the flows of energy flowing. Uh, I want to go back to a word that you used there just a few moments ago, weaponizing oil. What does it mean if, and I've seen this in some of the press uh, uh, analysis here, what does it mean, what would it mean if Saudi Arabia tried to weaponize oil? Well, they could cut flows to a certain region. Uh, and obvious, the obvious one would be the U.S. The reason that they would maybe do it to the U.S. is because the U.S. is the, the largest, the most transparent market. And so you would see those flows dropping. Uh, it'd be more obvious to the U.S. than it would be elsewhere. They would as well do it to the U.S. too, because uh, that that's where the issue is between right. the U.S. and Saudi. All that said... Um, Saudi is the second largest supplier of crude to the U.S., uh, only second to Canada. The, this year, they've sent about 860,000 barrels a day of crude to the U.S. About a third of that crude is going to a refinery in Texas, to the Port Arthur refinery, and that is owned by Saudi Aramco. And so you're not going to see those flows likely disrupted because they are heading to uh, a Saudi-owned refinery in the U.S. I see. Uh, where do you see this ending? With a whimper, to be honest. Uh, I think just because the hesitance of President Trump to escalate the situation really reflects his lack of desire to upset the status quo or to upset the apple cart. This may continue to make headlines as it has done for the last few weeks as we move ahead, uh, but that seems to be what it will be limited to. Matt Smith, Director of Commodity Research at Clipper Data. Matt, thanks for your time. Thank you, David. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Becky Fogel with a roundup of news from across the state. A boil water notice has been issued for the entire city of Austin. City manager Spencer Kronk said at a press conference that historic flooding in the past week has inundated the city's water sources with high concentrations of silt. As it turns out, the unprecedented rain flooding our lakes and rivers is having impacts beyond the dams and shorelines of central Texas. Our water system is the most recent infrastructure to struggle to keep up with the impacts. The impact of recent heavy rains and flooding has been widespread, affecting parts of north central and south Texas. Governor Greg Abbott has issued a disaster declaration for more than 50 counties. 
The American Civil Liberties Union and other groups delivered 200,000 signed petitions to the Greyhound bus headquarters in Dallas at the end of last week. As KERA Stella Chavez reports, the group wants the company to stop allowing U.S. Border Patrol agents onto their buses to question passengers. Gathered in a downtown Dallas park, the protesters said Greyhound has the right to refuse Border Patrol agents from boarding their buses without a warrant or probable cause. The campaign, called Transportation Not Deportation, accuses Customs and Border Patrol agents of violating passengers' constitutional rights by asking that they prove their U.S. citizenship. In a speech to the crowd, Texas Democrat Joaquin Castro says the practice is happening in heavily Hispanic areas and beyond border checkpoints. Greyhound is doing something that they don't have to do. They're subjecting many of their passengers who have paid them a fare. They're subjecting them to warrantless searches, to racial profiling. After a series of speeches, the group walked several blocks to Greyhound's headquarters carrying boxes of signed petitions. Trisha Martinez, senior vice president for Greyhound's legal department, read a statement from CEO Dave Leach. CBP officers do not ask our permission to board our buses. We do not want to put our driver's safety or our passengers at risk by attempting to stop a federal agent from conducting legal checks. More protests are planned in the coming weeks. Stella Chavez, KERA News. A Mexican journalist seeking asylum in the United States appears before an immigration judge in El Paso this morning. Emilio Gutierrez Soto's case gained national attention after federal officers in West Texas detained him and his son during a routine immigration check-in. He was held for months before being freed from detention this summer. Gutierrez has been seeking asylum in the United States for about a decade after facing death threats in Mexico for reporting on government corruption. That's look at news from across the state. I'm Becky Fogel for the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. Great to have you with us on this Monday. Last week this time, a piece of news broke that would have seemed impossible a century ago. Sears, one of America's most dominant retailers, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy thanks to declining revenue and massive debt. The Sears Roebuck catalog once upon a time was a staple of American coffee tables. There wasn't much you couldn't get from it, including something that may well survive Sears itself, one's very own home. Michael Marks reports. There are certain items you expect to find in a mail-order catalog. Sewing machines, for example, or watches or bath towels. You don't expect to find a house. But that didn't stop Richard Warren Sears and Alva Roebuck, co-founders of the Sears Roebuck Company. Dear Mr. Sears and Roebuck, I've been sitting here a-thumbing through your book. The only reason that Sears got into this was he knew it was a way to sell more of the stuff in his 100,000-item, 1,400-page catalog. He'd actually would put dotted lines within the floor plan shown in the catalog and say, space for Davenport, space for phonograph. That's Rosemary Thornton. She's an expert in Sears kit houses. Sears sold them from 1908 to 1940. They were called kit houses because they came with all the lumber and hardware you'd need to assemble them, plus instructions on how to put it all together like a giant Lego set. Each year's catalog offered dozens of different models, all the way from the Natoma, a simple three-room model for $191, to the Magnolia, 
I think it was five thousand eight hundred forty-nine dollars. Had twenty-nine hundred square feet, four bedrooms, two and a half baths, plus servants' quarters. To find out if your home is a Sears kit, the best way these days is to consult one of the many websites and Facebook groups devoted to them. It's unknown exactly how many kits were sold or how many are still standing. There's no official list. The Midwest is a real hotbed for them. But Thornton's found a handful in Texas, and there are surely many more that remain undiscovered, so to speak. Kit homes are like roaches. If you find two, you know there's another 20 hiding somewhere. The main benefit was price. They weren't cheap, per se, but certainly less expensive than a pre-built home. And remember, this is the early 20th century. If you were someone who might have trouble buying a house through conventional means, a kit home was a viable alternative. Overwhelmingly, it was single women, men and women of color, and immigrants fresh to the country. Lenders would look at demographics in a neighborhood. If you were a certain type, you were not going to get a mortgage, period. But it didn't last. The business started losing money in the 30s, and indoor plumbing and electricity made home building more complicated. By 1940, Sears was out of the kit house business. But Thornton thinks that most of the Sears homes that were built are still around. The reason is a cliché, but it's one that applies here. They just don't make them like they used to. The quality of building materials in Sears homes far surpasses most of the stuff even of the day, and certainly the things that are built today. That quality is evident in Will and Patty Moore's kit house in Georgetown, just north of Austin. They live in an Avondale model built in 1914. It's a green, one-story bungalow with a shady porch next to a big bay window out front. They originally bought it with the intent to flip it, but the house grew on them as they fixed it up. They decided to move in instead. In our vernacular, the word kit denotes, you know, very, not very, well, not very solid thing or, you know, something was a kit. And that can't be applied to Sears kit homes. When you step inside, the house has a wide-open feel to it, with windows everywhere and the living room and dining room separated by dark wood columns. It's gone through some changes over the years, like many interior coats of paint, wall-to-wall shag carpeting, and the addition of another bathroom and a laundry room. But the Moors have made sure that from the curb, it looks like it did back in 1914. They even got the seal of approval from some of the home's former tenants. There was a guy born in the house in that front room. And in 2006, when we bought the house, he was still alive, and he came to visit us. It was, you know, it was pretty emotional for him. We were sitting at the table over there, and then we did walk through. But his sister came and kind of, she kind of gave her blessing. And there are little signs of the house's history all over. Once, when Will was doing some work on the back of the house, he had to pull some siding off of an outside wall. When we took the siding off, we found two signatures from 1914. And we determined that they were probably the people that built the house. After they found those signatures, Patty decided to make her mark too. On the wood behind the sheetrock in the laundry room, she wrote her name and said that this is where she did her ironing. For them, it's nice to think about the future owners who might find it. We are the current caregivers is, is what it amounts to. The house is the mainstay. We're just transients, you know. <laughs> so Patty's signature will sit on a tight, dense board milled over a century ago, just waiting to be found. 
It may even be there long after Sears itself. For the Texas Standard, I'm Michael Marks. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. To aid early detection, all women over the age of 40 should undergo routine screening, like yearly mammograms. More at TexasOncology.com. Second Cup is a nonprofit coffee shop in the Heights in Houston. This year, we actually started a program of our own. It's called Brazen Table. And Brazen Table is a 22-week culinary training program for survivors of sex trafficking. The culinary training part of it was a combination of classroom teaching and then also in the kitchen training. And so some of our participants came never having cooked a meal from scratch before. And um, they all, at the end of it, took their serve safe test. And so they all passed. And they are all able to actually go get jobs in the industry. Most of them were all um, trafficked here in the United States, but everyone's background is different. You know, sometimes people are trafficked by family members, sometimes um, they're just in a vulnerable situation and someone preys upon that. One of the things that we've learned is for women to completely, not just women, men too, to get completely out of being trafficked, they actually have to find meaningful work. This is what we can do as a shop to help others um, actually become independent and, you know, just have meaningful work at the end of the day. The voice of Brooke Evans from A Second Cup in Houston. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. As we approach the midterm elections, we've seen several themes in the races. Among them, more women than ever are seeking office. A new short film highlights two Texas women who were among the first in the modern era to make a big impact on politics. It's called Molly and Ann, and it follows the mostly separate, though occasionally intersecting, stories of journalist Molly Ivins and Governor Ann Richards. The director is documentary filmmaker Paul Steckler, who is also a professor in the radio, television, film department at the University of Texas at Austin. Paul, good to see you again. Good to see you. Uh, This film is primarily made up of interviews and footage from years ago, some of it uh, well-known, like, for instance, Ann Richards' uh, Mm -hmm. speech at the 1988 Democratic Convention. Uh, a lot of it, uh, though, I, I certainly have, had never seen before, especially Molly Ivins. Some of that stuff is just, is just terrific. Well, uh, actually, the, the, the only thing in it that's national is uh, Anne at the convention in 1988. The rest of it is uh, stuff that I filmed, primarily material that we filmed probably in the last years of their lives. Why now? Why did you think that it was important to turn a spotlight on Molly Ivins and Ann Richards? Well, I think that... Um, and these were people that were incredibly important in their time, incredibly important voices, whether you liked them or you didn't like them, you know, politically, and they are worth remembering, and they were also friends. And I had all this footage. We had done, you know, short pieces about them when I had my old series special session on KLRU, 
but it's a public TV station public. in uh, in Austin. And uh, you know they then they were on you know all the PBS stations in Texas, but mm-hmm. uh, you know they were just seen once. Right. And I thought, you know, how do we put this together? How could we put this together and get it out in the world? And one of the wonderful things about it being an independent filmmaker is that you have no deadlines. One of the worst things about being an independent filmmaker is you don't have any deadlines. <laughs> yeah. And it just took a while to figure that out. And I think over the summer I realized that if I could use the Women's March, you know, and throw forward, because this was what they worked for in their own ways, you know, maybe maybe indirectly. I mean, and you know, brought minorities and women into state government like nobody else had ever done before. You know, Molly was a journalist, you know, but a role model. And they were both women who, I hate to use the cliche, ahead of their time, but there are very few people, you know, in politics like Anne when she was governor, and there are very few people like Molly in journalism when she was writing. So so this seemed like the right time. I figured out the hook, and we just put it together over a over the last part of the summer, literally finished last week. Uh, there was something about the fight that they were waging, which they were dead serious about. Sure. But they did it in such a way, they fought that battle in such a way that it was hard to dislike them as people. No, no, I agree. I think in public they were very, very, very entertaining. They were very funny, you know, and they were very serious. In some ways, they're not only, you know, people who were ahead of their time, in terms of paving the way for women in politics, you know, in electoral politics, especially the way you see things this time and in uh, political writing, you know, but also, uh, um, you know, they are a sign of a different type of politics, a different time. Did they travel in the same circles? Did they have the same friendship? Did they hang out together? I, I don't think they were close friends. I mean, they were they were part of the political community here. They knew each other. Um, you know, there's always uh, some, something of a divide between people that cover politics and people uh-huh. that are in politics. Uh-huh. But did they, you know, travel in somewhat similar circumstances, uh, circles? Yeah, sure. Austin is not, not that big a town back then. Clearly, Ann Richards had a sense of history, a sense of moment about her. She, she knew that she would be remembered and wanted to be remembered. What about Molly Ivins? I think... Um, I think everybody, you know, wants to be remembered. Everybody has an ego. Um, And I think that Molly, because of just the sheer output of her writing, you know, the 400 columns and the 400 newspapers that carried her columns, you know, all the books, knew that she she was, had a large audience and would be remembered. You know, it's hard for me to say, you know, what she felt inside in terms of what she thought her legacy would be. But I think in her lifetime, she felt that she wanted to be able to impact politics and policy and impact public opinion as much as she possibly could. You know, and clearly, you know, Governor Richards obviously did that by just the point of being in office and being able to make such an impact. She made her mark during that one term as governor in the state of Texas. If you go into the rotunda uh, and you see all those paintings of governors of Texas, mm-hmm. right. Just go in there sometime and just look at, especially the young women that'll stop in front of Anne's picture and stare at it. Okay, that's a legacy. And, you know, for Molly's writing, a lot of people still remember it, you know, and a lot of people, you know, miss her voice. Molly and Anne is the title of the new film. It's showing at the 25th Annual Austin Film Festival. Any idea uh, when or how others might get a chance to see it? Uh, You know, let's see what the audience is like during those things if a lot of people get turned away and we'll figure out some way to be able to to um to have it either you know, hopefully maybe on KLRU 
in Texas PBS stations or maybe another big screening with a bigger theater sometime sooner rather than later. Paul Steckler, director of the new short film Molly and Anne. Paul, thanks so much for coming back and talking with us on The Standard. Thanks so much for inviting me. Houston Public Library faces a lawsuit over a city-sponsored drag queen story hour. The claim is that it violates religious freedom rights. According to the Houston Chronicle, opponents of the story rallied at the federal courthouse on Friday. The group who identify in the lawsuit as Christ followers has also been vocal about opposing marriage equality and lifting gender restrictions on bathrooms. One plaintiff had previously sued for the right to marry his laptop, arguing that if men can marry men, he should have the right to wed his computer. Defendants in the library lawsuit include the library director and Mayor Sylvester Turner, whom plaintiffs say are promoting, quoting here, LGBT doctrine. We're coming up on 49 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. Stick around. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. It's the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. Texas's foster care system is violating the constitutional rights of children, and Texas must improve its investigations of child abuse allegations. All that according to a new ruling by a federal appeals court panel. This affirms a lower court finding, which used similar language in 2015, ordering Texas officials to reform the foster care system. But, but the ruling also stated that the original order demanding changes nonetheless went too far. Ultimately, what does all this add up to for kids in the state's foster care system? Stephanie Rubin is CEO for Texans Care for Children, a nonpartisan advocacy group based in Austin. Ms. Rubin, welcome to the Texas Standard. Happy to be here. I understand that uh, there are lots of advocates who are saying this is a huge victory for Texas children, and yet uh, the wording of this order sounds an awful lot like uh, an order that we heard several years back. How much? What, what's what's the news here? Well, the ruling is a, a real vindication for the plaintiffs and and an important victory for all kids in Texas foster care. So the three judges on the Fifth Circuit panel, all appointed by Republican presidents, by the way, found a, quote, substantial risk of harm to the more than 10,000 kids in Texas foster care from caseworkers having too high caseloads, which we've heard over years and years, poor state monitoring of foster care placements, and the failure of Texas leaders now and and over decades to address the long-documented and well-known safety concerns. The words that stood out to me were deliberately indifferent to the threat of uh, to the threat to children's welfare. But what then, if if there is this indifference, what then changes as a result of this order? Well, the, let's step back for a second and remember who the plaintiffs were in this case. So the the plaintiffs represented kids who were removed from their parents and placed in Texas foster care and and generally had been in foster care for over a year and hadn't been adopted. And what we think should happen is these kids' lives should get better. And what the court found, as you mentioned, is that the lives of too many kids in Texas foster care get worse and that the state essentially knew the risks of harm and, and 
ignored them for but, decades. But I guess what I'm asking is what changes, because this order, as I understand it, has invalidated some of the reforms that were ordered by the lower court judge, and that would have required an increase, for instance, in the number of foster homes. Well, Texas is going to have to move forward on two tracks as a result of the court case. First, based on the decision, the state leaders will need to allocate more funding to hire more CPS caseworkers and reduce caseloads. They're going to have to improve oversight of the facilities that care for the the larger groups of kids um, and hire more staff to investigate claims of abuse. And they're going to have to improve the state's record keeping and data system, which the court frankly, found to be a total mess. Uh, do you have, uh, uh, first, I, sh- I guess, suppose we should roll back for just a moment because there's always the potential that the state could appeal this uh, ruling. Have you heard any, any word from the attorney general's office here? I, I have not seen any word from the attorney general's office, and I, I suspect that the state will ultimately move forward with the lower court decision. And, and even where the courts differed, you know, where, there, where the, the appellate court invalidated some of the prescriptions of the lower court, it's pretty clear the evidence was very uh, damning in terms of what uh, kids had suffered in care. So I suspect legislators and the state will move forward also with some of the issues that may not be constitutional violations, but nonetheless are really important. Um, and these include reducing the number of kids in sort of group facilities and prioritizing more family-like settings where kids do better, um, and ensuring that kids transitioning out of care have the skills and supports they need uh, to succeed once they're on their own. And in both of those areas, the state has actually been making progress over time. And so I suspect we'll continue to see important changes in the law. Stephanie Rubin is CEO for Texans Care for Children. That's a nonpartisan advocacy group based in Austin. Ms. Rubin, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. Yeah, thank you, David. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. It's Monday, and joining us once again in the studio, our social media editor, Wells Dunbar. I'm looking at this thing. I did, You know, mm-hmm. when we started off our show, we were talking, it seemed like maybe turnout was kind of um, not so uh, Yeah, maybe heavy. not what we were expecting. And then uh, looking here at the Houston Chronicle reporting, this is the headline, shocking turnout for first day <laughs> of early voting in Houston. Well, it just goes to show how different places are, are yeah. experiencing this differently. Yeah, it really seems like the uh, kickoff to early voting is uh, kind of the predominant story on social media, the hashtag early voting trending on Twitter, and some interesting context uh, to the reports of the big lines we've seen in Austin. Uh, This is interesting. My colleague Ashley Lopez here at KUT in Austin just tweeted that the Travis County clerk, Dana DeBouvois, says Mm -hmm. that 6,680 people have voted in person in the county as of 10 a.m. Quote, it looks like we are headed toward the presidential turnout numbers that we thought we might get, end quote, there. So, yeah, so bracing themselves for a very busy day at the polls where that's also getting borne out by the uh, messages folks are sending us, uh, David, via Facebook. Johnson Simmons sends us uh, a photo of a line to vote at St. Edwards University in Austin. Mm -hmm. Students and faculty have one day only to use this polling location. It's one of these mobile uh, polling locations, Austin, uh, one uh, city that has these. And he adds that when people care about the issues affecting them, this is what happens, that big, big turnout. Of course, not everyone today, or not everyone can make it 
today. Doris Murdoch tweets us that she is voting tomorrow, plus getting my husband's mail-in ballot mail, plus snagging my daughter and her spouse and my son and his spouse and anyone else I know to vote. So yeah, lots of enthusiasm. Lots of yeah. enthusiasm out there. And, you know, speaking of enthusiasm, we're also going to be keeping an eye on the situation uh, in Houston, not just the uh, voting situation, but that uh, rally tonight uh, right. with President Trump in support of Ted Cruz and other Texas Republicans. So um, definitely, definitely something to watch there, too. As yeah. Well. Donald Trump tweeting out a uh, big night in Texas uh, this morning. So I guess he's going to be en route there. I had heard that he's going to be at an arena that seats about 18,000 people. But Art Acevedo, the chief mm-hmm. of police there in Houston, is bracing for crowds. He was saying over the weekend uh, something like seventy thousand people. Good grief! Uh, wow. Now, uh, of course, it was, yeah, it was scheduled at a very small. I think it was a re- initially scheduled at a place that only held something like eight thousand people. So, mm-hmm, right. uh, definitely a step up. I knew they had moved it. Yeah. Well, speaking of early voting, another comment here from Timothy Lyon. He says, "I think everyone in Austin is a little busy figuring out." Figuring out the boil water notice and bottle and buying bottled water before they go vote, people are in line at the grocery store instead of the polling place. You know, some <laughs> yeah. places, I think it's Randall's, you can vote and maybe buy That's some right. bottled water if they're not out of it. <laughs> but lots right. of folks talking about this one. It's obviously affecting lots of people. I, I think some of my coworkers here in the newsroom were tweeting out photos of the uh, bottles of water I have lined up at my desk currently. <laughs> No one's taking me up on my Hunger Games-style competition for said bottles of water. But lots of people talking about that. Ikena on Twitter says, uh, boil water notice or conspiracy to buy Topo Chico. Well, lots of Topo that. Chico jokes out yeah. there. But uh, seriously, Personado tweets us that if you have the privilege or access to clean bottled water, please give it to people who may not have that same access. You know, you and I get to go home and boil water. Right. Uh, obviously, could be an issue for some other folks. Yep. Uh, big boil water freak out here in Austin. Yeah. Uh, everyone going out and buying some water. Uh, Alas, we're out of time for the big broadcast. We'd love to know what's going on in your neck of Texas. Tweet us, won't you, at Texas Standard. We're going to be back here for the big broadcast tomorrow. We hope you will join us. On behalf of the entire team, I'm David, wishing you a marvelous Monday. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Woldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. PRI Public Radio International.